Some of you are probably old enough to remember the childhood disease polio and how dangerous that was. And if you don't remember living through those polio scares, then you probably have read something about that. Um, today in the Western world, polio, wild polio, has pretty much been eradicated thanks to vaccinations and modern medicine and all of that kind of thing. But one of the last people to die from polio actually passed away just last September. His name was David Salamore. I assume I'm pronouncing that right. S-A-L-A-M-O-R-E. David Salamore. And David was 28 years old. And even though wild polio has been almost eradicated, there are rare freak cases where people can receive the polio vaccination and that weakened form of the virus they get in the vaccination can mutate in their system and they can contract full-blown polio. And that's what happened to Mr. Salamore, because he has a very, very uncommon autoimmune deficiency. And when that weakened virus was injected into his compromised immune system, just one of those real freak medical things happened, and he contracted polio, which would end up and take his life. But even though that is certainly a tragedy, if there is any good news to that experience, it is that uh, through that uh, tragedy, um, the way people give and receive polio vaccinations has been changed to ensure that that basically can never happen again. But I wonder, could it be today that some of you have been injected with just enough weakened Christianity to make you immune to Jesus forever? Could it be that maybe like Mr. Salamore, a weakened and a dead version of the gospel has been injected into a compromised church culture to give some of you false assurance and false hope. Many of you today in church have the right vocabulary. You have the right experiences. You've had the right feelings. And you have the right good works. But all those things have done is deaden you to the reality of your need for Jesus. Some of you who seem today very religious and very Christian and very Baptist and very good are going to find out, maybe too late, that you are going to be eternally lost without Jesus. We are going to finish our study of the Sermon on the Mount today in one of the hardest, most difficult, most troubling passages of Scripture in all the Word of God, where Jesus tells us this one difficult truth that some of you have never heard before and you need to hear today, and that is this. Christians, Christians go to hell too. Matthew chapter 7, verse number 21 When you found that, I want you to stand with me as we reverence and honor the Word of God. Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 21. The Lord says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You may be seated. And I trust the Lord is going to work in our hearts from this text today. As we've studied the Sermon on the Mount here at Sharon Heights this summer, I've tried to tell you, and I think I've told you just about every week, that what Jesus is doing here in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is He is presenting Himself as our King. 
Matthew has shown us in this gospel that Jesus is the king of the Jews and that as the king of the Jews, Jesus is the king of kings. He is the king to end all other kingdoms. And as our king, he has the right to tell us how to live. He has the right to tell us how to think. He has the right to tell us what to love and what to hate, the things to value, the things to run away from. And what Jesus has shown us in this sermon, in in verse after verse, and story after story, and picture after picture, chapter after chapter, Jesus has said that if I am your king, then there are only two responses you can have to me. And that was true for the people that heard him 2,000 years ago, and it's true for you today. There are only two responses you can have to Jesus. Either you can bow to him and love him and obey him as a faithful citizen of his kingdom, or you can reject him and live and die as a rebel. Those are the only options that are before you. And it's precisely that point that Jesus makes in the conclusion to this sermon, beginning in verse number 13, where he says to all of us, look, there are only two paths you can walk. He said, you can walk abroad in an easy path that will be comfortable for you, that will be natural to you, that will seem easy for you, and nobody will ever challenge you. But he said, that path will lead to destruction. But then he said, you can walk a narrow way that will press you, that will cause you to deny yourself, that will constantly conform you to be more like me and less like what you used to be. He said, it will challenge the things you love and challenge the things you hate, and that hard, narrow way will lead to life everlasting. He ends the passage and ends the sermons by saying there are two foundations you can build your life on. You can build your foundation on the the lies of culture, the lies of religious tradition. You can build your foundation on things that are familiar to you. And he said when the judgment of God comes, you will be swept away like somebody who built their house on the sand. Or you can dig down deep into my word. And Jesus said you can build your life on the bedrock of my teaching. And when the judgment of God's wrath comes against you, Jesus says you will stand strong and you will be safe. So he's saying there are two options before you today, loyalty to your true king or rebellion to him. But in the middle of that conclusion, Jesus also warns us, beginning in verse 15, about the danger of being deceived. And he does that by giving us the familiar metaphor we looked at last week of a wolf in sheep's clothing. Jesus says there are people who will show up from time to time, who will speak in my name, who will look the part and who will act the part, and who will claim to be leading you down the right path, claim to be building you on the right foundation, but Jesus says they are dangerous and they are deadly. But now Jesus warns us about another kind of deception, one that may seem much less violent, But as every bit is common and every bit is dangerous, and that is the danger of self-deception. As he says to us in these verses that it's possible for us to live a good life, to live what looks like a Christian life, but ultimately to live a lost life. The plain teaching of this text that we've read this morning is that there are going to be many, many people, some of you, who will stand before Jesus for the first time expecting to have the pearly gates swing wide for you to walk into heaven, only to have the doors to heaven slammed in your face, and for Jesus to say to you, I have no idea who you are. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. So how can that be? How can it be that people who would call themselves Christians, who look like Christians, who act like Christians, how can they go to hell? Don't we become Christians so that we don't go to hell? Well, today we're going to look at this final judgment as Jesus teaches it here in this passage of Scripture. And we're going to see all of the drama and all of the tension And all of the shock of a high-profile court case. All the elements are here. There's a judge here. There's evidence. There's a verdict. There's a sentence. There's defendants. And I just want to say to some of you today, as plainly as I can say it, that you are religious people. You are good people. But people like you go to hell. 
And that's what Jesus teaches in this passage. Court is in session, and he teaches us what happens when Christians stand before him and are eternally condemned. And begin, we start with the judge. Not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that there will be a day when all of the world will be judged by him. He is the one who will sit on the bench and give the final judgment over our lives. Now, I want you to think about how remarkable of a claim this is from the Lord Jesus, especially in our culture today, because our culture today, on the one hand, wants to think it really, really does love Jesus. We like Jesus. But even Christians aren't comfortable with the idea of judging or coming across as being judgmental or of being judged. But here's Jesus who says, I am the true judge. I am the one who gives the last word about your life. I am the one who gives the final verdict about who you are. So take that point today. It is Jesus who is on the throne. It is Jesus who judges. It is Jesus who ultimately determines whether we live forever in heaven or die forever in hell. So if you're here today and you're a very religious person, take that point. Because an important component that drives religious people is the social component to it. We like to be connected to other religious people. We like to feel like we belong. If our family is religious, we like to feel like we have their approval. We like to fit into the youth group. We want to impress our parents and earn their applause. We want the pastor to like us for the most part. And so it's easy for us to think that because we have the approval of religious people, then we must belong. And if we belong to them, then we must also have the approval and the acceptance of God and Christ themselves. But Jesus is teaching us here that it's possible for us to have the approval of religious people, but not to have his approval. That it's possible to have our name as part of a Sunday school class. It's possible to have our name on a church roll. It's possible for our parents to think we're good Christians, for the pastor to think that we are good people and a good believer, but to ultimately stand before Jesus and have Jesus say, I know the truth. And the truth is, I have no idea who you are. So Jesus says that we should not really be living for the approval of a church culture. We should not be living for the approval of a church family. We should not primarily be concerned about the wants and wishes of our family. We should be asking ourselves today, what is Jesus going to say about us when we meet him? Because the Bible tells us over and over again in places like Romans 14, 12, that every one of us will give account of ourselves to God. It is his opinion that is the final verdict of our lives. You can live for the approval of a lot of people, and it's good to have people like you. It's good to have religious people like you. But really, finally, you're not going to answer to them. You're not going to answer to me. You're not going to answer to your youth group or your church family. You're going to answer to Jesus. Jesus says, I am the judge who will determine what happens to you in eternity. Jesus says that all of history will have its climax at his feet when every person... The Bible says in Revelation 20, every person small and great stands before a great white throne. And his presence is so holy and perfect that heaven and earth flee from him. They cannot abide him. And the Bible says that they stand before him. He opens the books and the dead are judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And then the Bible says that the sea gives up the dead and it, death and Hades give up the dead in them. And they're judged according to what they are done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's Jesus that is on that throne. And in life, so many times we... We hate it when people condemn us. We hate it when people think ill of us or when people may judge us. And we like to always think and say, well, uh, you know, if they knew what I knew, 
then they would think differently. If they knew all the facts, that's how we justify ourselves. If they knew about this situation or about that issue, what I knew and why I understood, then they would know why I made the decision that I made or why I did the things I did. They may have even made the same decision I did if they knew what I knew. We need to remember today, friends, that our destiny is to stand before a judge who has all the facts. We're even told today many times that certain evangelical Christian doctrines that we would believe are out of fashion and out of date, that we need to change what we believe and what we preach so that we would be on the right side of history. And even in that argument, there's, there's a presupposition that says history is headed somewhere and history might judge us. Folks, history is not headed somewhere as much as it is headed to someone. And the someone it is headed to is the Lord Jesus himself. And Jesus says that one day all of us will be judged by Him. So please take that point. Because we're all too comfortable in southern church culture treating Jesus like Santa Claus, who's useful once or twice a year and otherwise ignored. But Jesus says, you can treat me like that, but in the end I will be the one who judges whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell. So there's the judge. But there are also the defendants. Who are these people that He will condemn? Jesus says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. But these are people who would look at Jesus and call him their Lord. In fact, they do that twice in this passage of Scripture. They do that in verse number 21 and in verse number 22. These are people who have a religious vocabulary. These are people who have a healthy Christology. They think the right things about Jesus. These are people who know Christian language. These are people who know what the phrase traveling mercies means and when you should use it. These are people who know when you should pray for a hedge of protection to be around somebody. They can tell you about Christmas. They can tell you about the empty tomb. They can tell you about the old rugged cross. They could probably even sing it to you and might be able to play it on the organ. That's who these people are. Yet these people are lost. So if Jesus' words to us are true in Matthew chapter 7, then that means there will be people who attend and teach Sunday school, people who vote for Christian values, People with fish stickers on the back of their car, people who pay their tithes, people who have been baptized, people who have responded to altar calls, people who have dates written in their Bible, supposedly assuring them of when they came to know Jesus as their Savior, that'll hear from Him, I'm sorry, but we've never met. Is there really any more terrifying reality we could grapple with this morning? Is there any more sobering thought that we could deal with than for Jesus to say it's possible for you to be so good that you would never really understand your need of Him until you're finally rejected by Him. What should trouble us even more is that Jesus says there are many of these people. In verse 22. There's many people, we'll say. That's the same numerical language that He used in verse 13 and 14 when He talked about the narrow path and the broad way. He said there are only few people that are on the narrow way, but there are many on the broad way. Jesus says people go to heaven in handfuls. But ACDC was right. There is a highway to hell. And there is a passing lane. And Jesus wants us to see that there are many people who are fooled about their own standing before God. People like us. People who use the right language and know the words to the songs and have the right feelings and know when to stand up and sit down and know the right words to say. Those kinds of people can be lost too. So, let's get personal today. Could this be us? Could this be you? What many of us want to do when we hear something like this, as troubling as it can be, what many of us uh, are want to do is, is we want to do what these people did, right? We want to pull out our religious resume. And we want to comfort ourselves and we want to say, this can't be us. This can't be people like me. And here's why. Here's reason A, B, and C. Because I I knew how to pay my tithes. 
I remember when that missionary came to church and he showed those pictures of those hungry kids and I gave money in that offering to support that work. That People like me don't go to hell. People like me who go to Sunday school and who memorize their verses. Jesus cannot be talking about me. People like me, we don't drink, we don't party, we don't do those things. Jesus can't be talking about me. Well, let me just push you a little bit further in that direction because what many of us want to do is we want to establish our righteousness. We want to establish our goodness by comparing ourselves to people who aren't quite as good as us. And so we want to make ourselves feel better about who we are by trying to put other people down and lift ourselves up. If you want to compare your righteous acts to somebody's, why don't you compare them to the people in this text and see where you measure up? Because these people, apparently with a very honest conscience and a very clean heart, they stand before God and they say, look, Lord, we have cast out demons in your name. What would you do for Jesus this week? They say, Lord, we have done many mighty works in your name. Lord, our hands have been used to do the impossible as you have done miracles through us. Lord, in your name, we have, we have spoke prophecies. We've uttered about the unknown and the unknowable. Jesus says, your good deeds are not good enough. Let's not make us uncomfortable today. To deal with these words of Jesus, we may be shocked to see Jesus say something like this, or may be offended to hear a pastor say something like this. First of all, I'm not the one who said it. Jesus said this. Second of all, if we're paying attention, this makes all the sense in the world. Here's why. You look at the life of the average professing Christian today. If you look at the state of the average church around us, this makes perfect sense. Because the average Christian, you know how often the average Christian today attends a church service? Once a month, once every four weeks. That's considered a regular church attender. The average believer doesn't read their Bible. They have no appetite for the Word of God. What churches are growing and thriving? The ones where you've got clowns who are entertaining goats, not shepherds feeding sheep. That's where our appetites are. And the average Christian, 5%, 5% of professing believers in their lifetime will lead another person to the Lord through sharing their faith. We have no appetite for the Word of God. We don't pray. We don't read our Bible. We don't share the gospel. We're not growing up into the stature and the likeness of Christ. Our churches are divided. Our churches are not interested in seeing people saved. Our churches are just devoted to keeping us comfortable. People can't get along. We assassinate each other's character through gossip. We fight over ministry areas as if we are the king over everything that happens in the church. We act like we are lost because we are lost. The reason our churches are the way they are is because they are full of lost people. That's the reason. Because what Jesus says in this text of Scripture, those are the defendants, these people who think they are Christians. But hear from Jesus, I never knew you. But what's the evidence? This is where the text really picks up. When the people had their opportunity to speak to the judge and present their case, and when the judge presents his evidence to them, how can these good people be lost? Jesus says it's because they are, uh, they did not do the will of his father in verse 21. And in verse 23, he says they are workers of lawlessness. And it's when these doomed false converts take the stand that you really see why it is that religious people, that people who would call themselves Christians, here's, here's why they go to hell when they die. Here's why people meet Jesus for the first time only to be rejected by him. Because when they stand before him, they say to him, you have to accept me on the basis of the good things that I've done. Because when they stand before God, they pull out their good works and say, here's how good we've been and you have to accept us. 
They rely on good feelings. They rely on good memories. They rely on good experiences and good works to assure themselves they must be genuine believers. They can remember how they felt that night at youth camp. When all of their girlfriends were responding to the altar call and they felt the pressure to go forward and they finally gave in to that pressure and they felt so much better when they went. Surely that must be the day they were saved. They remember when they were baptized before the church, even though they may not have understood everything that was happening and how excited their family was. They clapped and they took pictures and surely that must be when they became a Christian. They remember the years of Sunday school attendance and faithfulness and teaching. Surely those good deeds have earned God's favor. Surely God has to let us into heaven based upon how good that we are. The shock and the tragedy is that there are people who no doubt in this crowd were people sitting in churches where the gospel was preached, but because they assumed they knew what it said, they missed the clear teaching of the Word of God that we are not saved by our good works. Because there are no good works we could ever do to save ourselves. Even our very best works are wrapped up with our sin nature and selfish motives. And they are wretched and unrighteous in the sight of God. And the only way for us to ever be saved, the only way for us to ever be accepted by God, is for for our hearts to grasp what the choir sang about a moment ago. That Jesus gave His life for us. That He lived a life that we never could live. And then He died for the life we did live. And that if we would look to Him, we would be saved. But these people never got that. All they heard or all they understood from the pulpits they sat under and from the church culture they were in was do better, was work harder, was fit in. And they stand before Jesus and that's all they have. So the question I would ask you today, honestly, in your heart, where you know the truth, I hope, and where God does know the truth, if you were to stand before Jesus right now, And he were to ask you, which I don't think he will, but if he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? If there is that entrance exam, what would you tell him? What would you tell him? Lord, here's the reason I should get to heaven. You know what I'm going to have to tell him? If I'm going to be honest, which I figure if I'm standing before Jesus, honesty would be a good idea. (laughs) What I'm going to tell him when I meet him, if I'm honest, I'm going to say, Lord, there is no reason at all you should let me into heaven. There is no reason at all you should let me into heaven. I've never done anything that is really commendable. I've never done anything purely for your sake, but it's always been attained with some kind of self-interest. Lord, I've never really been that good. I've never really been that holy. Lord, everything that I've done is sinful. And Lord, the only hope that I have is that Jesus gave himself for sinners like me. And Lord, I will take my stand with him. And if he's good enough to save, I trust him. But if not, I'm lost forever. But religious people live and die lost forever because they never look outside of themselves to the one who can save. So as you face this troubling thought, wondering, could this be you? What is your assurance really today? Is it the prayer you prayed? The feelings you felt? The date you have written down somewhere in the family Bible? The good things you have done? Or is, are you looking at this and saying, this ought to be me? But Jesus was condemned in my place, and he's the only hope that I have. So, here's where I want to just pause and take a break today. How did we get here? How did these people get here? How do we end up, as Baptists in the South, how do we end up religious but lost? There's more than one way to do that. You can end up religious and lost growing up in Roman Catholicism. You can end up religious and lost in Mormonism, but you can end up religious and lost in a Baptist church too. How does that happen? Here's how it happens. I'm going to tell you today why good Baptists go to hell. 
The reason that good Baptists go to hell is because we have embraced two twin doctrinal errors. One of them is decisional regeneration, and the other is easy believism. Regeneration is merely the doctrine of the new birth. Jesus says in John chapter 3 and verse number 3, He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, unless you are born again, you will not go to heaven. You have to be born again in life as somebody different than who you were when you were born in this world. Or you will not be born into God's world. Paul says in Titus 3 that God has saved us not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Salvation, being born again, is a work that God does in somebody's heart. Where God, in resurrecting power, comes to someone who is dead in their sins, and He gives them new life. And He makes that person who was previously dead to God and dead to faith and dead to righteousness, He makes them alive to God, alive to Christ, alive to faith, alive to obedience. The Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 that when a person is truly saved, it happens because the very same power of God that brought Jesus out of his grave, the first Easter, invades them in the death of their sin and gives them the very same eternal life that Jesus has. That's biblical regeneration. But because pastors and preachers and church workers, we don't want to wait on God to be successful. We don't want to trust Him with the results of our preaching and our ministry efforts because we want to appear successful and fruitful and because we want to matter and we want our churches to grow and we want to make more money. We have cheapened the gospel to this. Repeat these words after me and you don't have to go to hell when you die. We tell people that God loves them, which He does, and we encourage them to make a decision. And we use language to justify all of this that is utterly foreign to the Bible. Listen to me today. The phrase altar call is never in the Bible. The concept of the sinner's prayer as you know it is nowhere in your Bible. The phrase ask Jesus in your heart, you will not find it. Give your life to Jesus, it's not in there. Nobody in the New Testament, Jesus or any apostle, ever told anybody to make a decision for Jesus. Nobody. But naturally, because we're compassionate, decent people, we don't want people to go to hell. Especially children. And so we put kids in environments where the music's just right and the, mo- the mood is just right and the lights are just right. And we manipulate them with the tricks of our ministerial trade to get them to repeat the magic words. And then because parents and grandparents really want those kids to be saved and to know Jesus, we confirm what they've done and celebrate that as genuine. So now we've got churches that are full of people, if they're full at all, who think that they have come to Jesus, but the only reason they've come to Jesus is out of a purely self-interested motive, which is, I don't want to go to hell. There's nothing supernatural about not wanting to go to hell. There's nothing miraculous about not wanting to go to hell. So people have come to Jesus because Jesus is good for them, and it appeals to their self-interest. And Jesus is going to make them eternally comfortable and eternally happy. But as they get older and all of a sudden sex and drugs and rock and roll or a career and money, when that stuff's more appealing than Jesus, what direction are they going to go? And that's what they do. And then the church has to respond to these people that we've baptized and confirmed and said, yeah, you're a Christian. And they have absolutely no fruit, have absolutely no spiritual life. And we look at them and we say, well, well, what do we say about them? So here's what we've done. We've invented this concept of easy believism where we said they may have accepted Jesus as Savior, but they have not accepted Jesus as Lord. 
And we do that because we don't want to confront them with the truth. And there are three reasons we don't want to confront them with the truth. Number one, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Number two is we don't want to run their family off from the church when we start telling them their kids and grandkids are lost. And number three, you know, we don't want to be liars. Because if we've told them all you need to do is repeat these words after us and that's not real, then we build our ministries and our churches on lies. And we don't want to prove ourselves to be liars. So we say, well, they may have accepted Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. But I want you to hear me today. It does not matter if this is the first Sunday you've ever been in church. It does not matter if you've never heard the name of Jesus before. Jesus is your Lord. You do not repent to make Jesus your Lord. You need to repent because Jesus is Lord. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the world and rose again and is seated at the right hand of power in heaven, He is not the buffet line at Nikki's West. You don't go to Jesus and pick three or four things and say, I've got what I want now, so I must have all of Him. No, you either have Him as your Lord or you don't have the Jesus of Scripture. So what's the end result of where we are? The end result is that there are people in churches, and I've been around them my whole life, that can share their entire testimony of how they got saved and how they came to know God. Just like the preacher and mama and the church said they needed to, they can tell you how they felt, they can tell you what they saw, they can tell you what they experienced, they can tell you how when they walked outside the sky was bluer and the grass was greener, and they can do every bit of it without mentioning the cross of Jesus Christ. And our Christianity has become this perverted monster where Jesus empowers people to be selfish. Remember, we come to Him out of a selfish motive of not wanting to go to hell, where people think they are saved, but they have no idea. Listen, this is where we are. People claim to be saved. They have no idea what they've been saved from because they're still living in the same sin they think they've been saved from. They have no idea what they've been saved from, and they have no idea how God saves in Christ at the cross. And friends, if you have a Christianity without the cross, you have a Christianity without Christ. And if you have Christianity without Christ, you do not have Christianity. I'd say we have a problem. And if you want to know how bad the problem is, here's how bad it is. Some of y'all have been in church for decades and you never heard anybody tell you this. And you think that I'm preaching something that's not in the Bible right now? Or you think that I've lost my mind? I'm going to tell you what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches this in Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul said... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he said that if anybody would come along and preach any other gospel other than the one he preached, which is salvation by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, for God's glory alone. If he says if anybody comes along and preaches another gospel that's different from that, he says let that person be accursed. So I will tell you today, and Paul said that was true about him. He said if it's a preacher, if it's an angel, if it's me, he said if I preach a false gospel, he said I deserve to be accursed. And I will tell you the same thing today, friend. Because that is absolutely true of me, that if I preach a false gospel, then I deserve to be cursed by God. And I have no doubt I will be. So here's what you should do. What you should do is you should take your Bible and study it. See what the Bible says about knowing Christ. See what it says about following Him. See what it says about the new birth. See what it says about being transformed and being holy. See what it says about desiring God and pursuing Christ and treasuring Him. See what it actually says. And if I'm wrong, I will apologize gladly. But church, my fear is not that I'm wrong. My fear is that I'm right. My fear is that we've created a church culture where we have mass-produced false conversions and we have no idea what to do about it. That we've manipulated people into doing something they really didn't understand and we've told them that they have experienced the work of God and they've never been transformed and they've got just enough of what we have to offer to keep them from Jesus and who He is. And that's happened to some of you. 
And the reason it worries me today, friend, is because that's my story. Because I was raised in church. I was raised a preacher's kid. The first time I ever asked Jesus into my heart, I was four years old. And I probably did it a million times between then and the time Jesus actually saved me. And when Jesus saved me at 17, something radical happened in me. And that was, I stopped relying on the prayers that I'd prayed and the feelings that I'd had and the things that I could offer to God as I realized that it was Jesus alone who could save me. And I looked to Him to save. This is my story. This should have been me. And that's why I don't want it to be any of you. Jesus gives them the evidence for why they are not genuine. But now He's going to give them the verdict as we move forward. In spite of their best evidence, Jesus the judge pronounces that these people are lawless. They have not obeyed the will of God. We can be great at covering over our disobedient hearts. By religious acts, we can put a a good veneer over who we are to make it look as if we are genuine believers. But evidently, these people, whatever was happening in their heart, they lacked true obedience, born out of genuine love and born out of genuine faith. And you see that with Jesus' words in verse number 23. He says, I never knew you. And I don't understand the dynamics of how all this works, but these people were doing great things for Jesus, but evidently they never were with Him. They didn't have a relationship with Him. They did not know Him. And because they did not know Him, they really didn't love Him. Because they really didn't love Him, they did not trust Him. And because they did not trust Him, they did not obey Him. Friend, the Bible teaches us over and over again, here as much as anywhere else in Scripture, that we are not saved by our good works. But the Bible also teaches us over and over again, here as much as anywhere else in Scripture, that salvation always produces righteous obedience. That where there is genuine trust and where there is true love, that there will be obedience from the heart. Not just religious performance to make myself look good, but there will be genuine obedience. There are verses after verses in the Scriptures that I could go to and show you that. Read the book of 1 John. That's what the whole book's about. How I can know I'm a believer. But I'll tell it to you like this. When Priscilla was born, we brought her home. She was a couple days old. And I walked her around the house the day we brought her home, and I, I gave her the tour of the place. I figured she was going to be living there. She needed to see it. So I showed her, this is the living room, this is your cat, this is the bathroom, you won't need that for a couple of years, this is, you know, your room, this is mom and daddy's room, all this kind of stuff, this is my study, all this stuff. And I took her, that day or maybe the next day, I took her, when she was just a few days old, and I said, honey, I want to lay out the ground rules of our house. Here's how this is going to work, here's what you're going to do. I told her, I said, here's the rules, don't lie, do as you're told, and always respect your mother. But put God first. I told her, don't lie, do as you're told, respect your mother. And then I told her this, I said, honey, I'm your father. I do not love you because you obey me, but you will obey me because I love you. That's the way our relationship with God is supposed to work. We're not obeying him to get him to love us. We're supposed to be loving him and obeying him because he loved us. These people had missed that entirely, and they're damned forever because of it. And that brings us to the sentence. Jesus sentences these people, and he condemns them to an eternity apart from him. In fact, that is the sentence, depart from me. I never knew you. Religion is a great place to hide from Jesus. Church is a great place to come to make yourself feel just good enough that you don't really need to encounter the grace of God. The grace of God confronts us with how helpless we are and how hopeless we are. And coming in here is a great way to prop yourself up to feel like you never really need to fall back on His grace. The problem is that when we use our religion to keep our distance from Jesus, 
eventually Jesus will give us that distance eternally. Did you see that sentence? What's the sentence? Depart from me. Depart from me. Let that settle in on you for a minute. Because many of you claim to know Jesus, but day to day, practically, you're a long way from him. And if Jesus isn't part of your life now in any meaningful way, what really makes you believe that Jesus will be part of your life eternally? If Jesus is somebody you ignore most days of your life now, why do you think you want to go spend eternity with him in heaven? But this is the horror of hell as the way the Bible portrays it. We think about the horror of hell, probably not as frequently as we should, and there, I think there are two ways that, that we've preached about hell. First is we just don't preach about it. We assume everybody knows about it, and that's bad. So, you know, ask Jesus in your heart. You don't have to go. Or we talk about hell, and we talk about fire and brimstone, and we talk about the worm dying not and all this terrible stuff, the rich man in Luke 16 begging for a drop of water to ease his torment. And we should because those are all words directly out of the mouth of Jesus. That's the way Jesus talked about hell. And if we're going to be Christians, we ought to at least have the guts to believe what Jesus believed about it. But there's more to it than that. Jesus says that the horror of hell, the pain of the sentence that he pronounces on these people, is that they are away from him forever. He doesn't sense them the fire and brimstone. I mean, he does, but he doesn't say that. That's not the sentence. The sentence is not so much eternal torment. The sentence is eternity away from Jesus. So think about this with me today. The horror of hell is that you are away from the Lord Jesus Christ forever. That's what makes hell, hell. That's what makes it terrible. That's, that's what should motivate you to not want to go there. And here's what should bother you today. What should bother you about that today is that that doesn't bother some of you at all. The thought of burning forever, yeah, that bothers you. The thought of begging God for mercy and begging for a drop of water to ease your pain, yeah, that troubles you. But the thought of being away from Jesus, you're already mostly away from Him. That ought to trouble us in our consciences today. That this doesn't bother, that we don't see this as horrible as it is to think I'll be away from him forever. So, Brother Jesse, is there any good news? Yes, there is. I see it in verse number 22. Where Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, folks, this is going to happen. This is settled in the mind of Jesus. He knows it's coming and he's gracious to warn us. But notice what he says. He says, on that day. Here's the good news for you today. That day's not today. The good news is that we are not here yet. And that on this day, you can come to this Jesus. And you can find Him as your Savior. And you can find in Him a gracious, loving Lord who will welcome you to Himself. And you can know forgiveness apart from religion, apart from your good works. You do not have to come to Him today bringing all the good things that you can do. But you can come to Jesus as terrible and as sinful and as guilty as you are. And you can come to Him and say, I have nothing to give you but a lifetime of sin. And He will take you and love you and give you grace. And the miracle that will happen is that you don't have to spend your life trying to be good so you can hide from Him. But you can know Him. And you can love Him, and you can serve Him, and you can obey Him. Why? This passage shows us that Jesus loves sinners. 
because He loves them enough to warn them about a day when they will stand before Him. And it's not just bad sinners that He loves, even though, thank God, He does. It's good sinners that He loves. It's sinners who are in church. It's sinners who have memorized Bible verses. It's sinners who are trying to impress God and other people with the things that they do. It's sinners who are lost in self-righteousness and blind to who they really are. Jesus said, I love those folks too. And I want to reach out to them and save them. Thank God He loves religious people. And here's what happened at the cross. Jesus looks ahead to a day in judgment when at the judgment He will say to people in their sin, He will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. And what happened at the cross is that God treated Jesus exactly the way Jesus says He will treat people at the judgment. That God looked at His Son and said, Get out of my sight. I cannot look at you as sinful as you seem to be, carrying the sins of the world. I cannot look at you as holy as I am. I have no relationship with you. Jesus cries at the cross and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus has already gone through this for us. That He has heard from His Father, Depart from me, so that you could hear Him say, Welcome home. Welcome home. That's what Jesus is saying to us from Scripture. So I would tell you today to come to Him now. Make this real. Make this your own. Be honest about where you are spiritually. And I know some of you have heard this today, and maybe you're, you're greatly troubled about your own soul. I hope that you are. I genuinely hope that you are. As uncomfortable as it may be. I want you to know I've been where you are. And there are people in this place that they would tell you that they've been exactly where you are. That they thought at one time they were religious enough to impress God. And then they went through a crisis in their soul where they understood that the only hope they had was Jesus. And we know it's uncomfortable. We know you don't want to be embarrassed. We know you don't want to disappoint anybody. We know that we, you don't want to let your family down. We get that. We get that. But we also know that if you would turn from anything else you could trust and look to Jesus alone, you would find forgiveness, you'd find grace, you'd find hope you would find forgiveness. You can have that today. You can have that. You say, well, what do I need to do? Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. Here's what I'm going to tell you to do. And I want to be very, very clear about this. First of all, coming to this altar cannot save you. Coming to Jesus can save you. Coming to this altar cannot save you. There's no ritual, there's no magic formula you can say that is going to save you. But here's what will be good for you to do. It would be good for you when we have our invitation in just a moment for you to stand up and to come forward. To grab me by the hand and say, Brother Jesse, I need, I need to get through this. And I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to show you scripture. And I'll be here all night with you if I have to be. To help you get it settled. But what would happen if some of you would come forward today. Is that you would forever publicly be turning your back on all of the good religious things that you've done. And in your mind it would settle the fact I'm not trusting in anything but Jesus from this point on. And come do that. You can do it right where you sit. Maybe you have while you've heard the sermon. Come and tell me. I'd love to celebrate with you. Maybe you have a lot of questions. Maybe you just don't know where you are really in your relationship with Jesus based upon what you've heard today. We can talk this afternoon. Or you can call me and we can get together this week. But I wouldn't leave until I knew. I wouldn't leave until I knew. Folks, it's bothered me all week knowing I was going to have to share this today. Because this is not fun. It's not uplifting and it's not inspiring. It's hard. But here's the thing. I'm going to be able to go home. I'm going to be able to chill this afternoon. Because I know I'm right with God through Christ. And you can too. You can too. Some of y'all are filled with doubt 
any relationship with God. You have been for years about whether or not you really are saved. And you always go back to this experience or this moment. Did, did I really get saved then? You know what you can do? You can leave every bit of that behind and you can look to Jesus as your assurance. You can say God accepts me because he accepts him. You can have that today. So we're going to stand together this morning. And I'm going to ask that if, if, you know, if you've got some other burden, if you've got some other need, I'm going to ask you just to keep your seat. But I want to give this invitation specifically for those, specifically for those who realize that they need to trust Christ as their Savior. If that's you today, we're going to, I'm going to pray for you and we're going to sing this invitation. And as soon as we begin to sing, I'm going to ask you if you would to come. Father, Lord, this is a hard subject we've dealt with today. But, Lord, we believe we've been honest, Lord. I believe I've told the truth. And I believe that one day when I stand before you, Lord, I can give an account and say, Lord, I told them plainly. Lord, I pray that people would not try to hide from the truth today, but they would run to it. And, Lord, they would know the truth, and the truth would make them free. Lord, that's my prayer. Lord, do it for Jesus' sake. Save in this place. In Christ's name.